Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in low-carbon fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves on future fuels and vehicles issues? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Dr. Chris Malins of Serology. Chris is the former program lead of the fuels program at the International Council on Clean Transportation. He started his fuels career leading communications for the Renewable Fuels Agency, the world's first biofuel sustainability regulator. Chris lectures on low-carbon fuels for the energy policy option of the environmental technology master's degree at Imperial College London. He has sat on advisory groups for the European Commission, UK Department of Transport, California Air Resources Board, International Civil Aviation Authority, Alberta Department of Energy and Roundtable on Sustainable Biomaterials. He holds a doctorate in applied mathematics from the University of Sheffield. Welcome, Chris, to the show today. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Tammy. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to get into talking with you about a project that you've been working on for over a year. It's called the BioFrontiers Project, and uh, you had a major event this week about the project. And before we get into questions about it, could you just explain for the listeners just around the world who may not be familiar with the project, what it involved and, and what it was all about? And we'll just go from there. I think the first thing to say is that this is a European-facing project. This is all in the context of the European Union looking at uh, developing a new climate and energy strategy for the period uh, 2020 to 2030. So we're expecting to see biofuels and alternative fuel policy uh, put in place over the next uh, year or two that will replace the framework which we have at the moment. And in that context, uh, working with the European Climate Foundation and the International Council on Clean Transportation, we wanted to try to bring together some of the major stakeholders around advanced biofuels and build a little bit of consensus about what a really effective policy environment would look like. Um, and in particular, with BioFrontiers, we have tried to bring together voices from industry and technology developers with um, some sort of environmental think tanks and, and environmental NGOs, because as I'm sure most, if not all of your listeners are well aware, discourse around biofuels has been quite vexed uh, in Europe, as in the United States and elsewhere for the last few years. Things like uh, indirect land use change, questions like uh, food versus fuel and issues around sustainability more generally have created a situation where often industry and civil society have been at loggerheads rather than in synchrony. So we were really keen uh, to build on some previous work we'd done uh, that we called Wasted, specifically looking at the opportunity for advanced biofuels from wastes and residues to really bring together as much as we could uh, voices from industry um, and from uh, civil society to bring forward something to the European institutions that can be agreed on and that we think would uh, could be the basis of a really strong alternative fuels framework to, uh, to 2030. First of all, what I really appreciate about the project, having read some of the, the papers and also having read the the overarching paper that was released this week with the um, with the event, 
is the key word, which is the consensus building. And, and you're right, there really hasn't been uh, a lot of that. And I don't know, I feel that uh, without approaching and working on issues where there's common ground, you know, there's, there's not going to be a lot of movement uh, forward. Or at least, at the very least, the, the loggerheads that you mentioned have been, I think, at points uh, really unproductive in terms of moving the, you know, you know, moving policy and moving the industry and moving civil society forward. So that's, that's something that I really appreciate about this work. And I don't know that I've really seen a collaboration like this. Um, can, actually, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? And also what the major findings were, you know, sort of in the project. Certainly there have been a couple of other sort of somewhat similar processes that have been set up over the last five years or so uh, in Europe that I think have had trouble and, and sort of haven't succeeded in, in getting all the way to a sort of an end point. So uh, we were really very pleased with Biofrontiers to be able to keep people together and keep people pointing in uh, sort of broadly the same direction. Uh, and of course, our participants do have different objectives. Uh, they have different worldviews to some extent, and that's uh, completely appropriate. And no question, we've had some you know, some quite intense and occasionally difficult conversations. I have been enormously grateful to all of the individuals who've participated representing their companies and their organizations because we have, I think, maintained a genuinely constructive and uh, positive environment in the meetings we've had, even where there has been disagreement. And inevitably, with any uh, initiative like this, of course, you can't bring everybody um, into the tent. So nevertheless, we're very pleased uh, with the group that we do have and uh, the way that that's worked. And I think that part of pulling people together has been that this is a project which has been really strongly rooted uh, in an underlying research effort. So not simply talking about positions, but actually uh, going out and working with the International Council on Clean Transportation's research team uh, with research teams at ECOFIS, uh, the Institute for European Environmental Policy, Defence Terre, and Green Ear, and I'm sure I'll have uh, forgotten someone. I, I hope I won't offend anyone too much. Oh, and, and previously with Wasted, uh, working also with the National Non-Food Crop Centre in the United Kingdom. And I think we have 11 underlying studies now that sort of form uh, this evidence base w which has built towards biofrontiers. And, and I think having that work, giving the participants in the project the opportunity to comment on and feed into those studies has really been immensely valuable in being able to find uh, common positions because we do have a really solid basis, I think, for saying the things that we're now saying. You know, first, the, this, the overall findings with biofrontiers you know, for you as a participant and, and really, you know, lead in the project, what really leaped out at you most? And what are the issues that, you know, come up again and again and again? And I guess maybe those questions are, are related and, and maybe even the same. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I guess there's sort of three key themes that I think do come up over and over and over and that you really can't 
uh, get away from doing this sort of work. The first, and, and this is in some sense the starting point for BioFrontiers, uh, in the sense that it, it built on this project that we did looking at the potential uh, for developing an advanced biofuel industry from waste and residues. Uh, so the first observation is that there is, you know, a genuinely significant resource out there and that can be sustainably mobilized um, and used to produce bioenergy, either for heat and power or what we've been more focused on, uh, liquid biofuels. And I, I think that's important to state. I personally don't believe that, that bioenergy is a sort of a, a one-stop solution for all of the world's climate problems. Um, one has to be realistic about the potential size of these industries. Um, and I think what we found is that this is an industry that can be large, that can deliver a really meaningful and significant contribution to transport sector decarbonisation. Uh, but that has to stand alongside other measures, such as uh, vehicle efficiency standards, such as uh, vehicle electrification. And I think there is a theme in BioFrontiers of complementarity, both within sort of bioenergy and the bioeconomy and in the sense of transport sector decarbonisation. So that's perhaps the first theme. I think the second theme and the work we did with ECOFIS looking specifically at uh, ECOFIS, I should say, and uh, Jeff Passmore's Passmore Group working out of Canada, looking at the investment case for advanced biofuels. Um, this is something that you'll hear people say time and time again, and correctly so. Uh, you need a solid, stable policy framework uh, to support investment in this industry for the new technology advanced biofuels which show the sort of the greatest growth potential we also have sort of existing sustainable uh, biofuels uh, used cooking oil biodiesel is, is a great example in europe and we've worked with the european uh, waste to advanced biofuel association within this project so you have those technologies which are relatively mature but for uh, new technologies, uh, cellulosic ethanol production, uh, pyrolysis, uh, fissiotrops, uh, synthetic fuels and, and, and various other things that are on the cards. You're talking about high capital expenditure requirements. Uh, you're talking about either first or you know, certainly not, not more than perhaps sixth or seventh of a kind plants going in. So that's a degree of technology risk, certainly a high perception of technology risk for investors. And you need a policy framework that provides a clear value proposition, that provides certainty moving forward. And ideally, that is genuinely targeted to support investment and deployment. I think there is a difference uh, between the most effective policies to support uh, production and expansion in a mature industry uh, versus the sort of policies which are most effective at supporting this new development. The third theme that I think you come back to again and again is that uh, sustainability and being serious and uh, effective in dealing with the sustainability of these fuels is absolutely crucial, not only from an environmental point of view uh, in terms of giving you effective safeguards, but actually because if there isn't an effective sustainability framework and if civil society doesn't see that there's an effective sustainability framework, then you can't have policy certainty. Because if the environmental community uh, come to believe that you're doing more harm than good with your um, advanced alternative fuel policy, then there will be opposition. When you have political opposition, you have political uncertainty. And I think you know, the indirect land use change debate provides an excellent example of that. 
there's no question that there were legitimate issues there, um, and in my opinion at least, that, that did really need to be discussed and addressed. But there's also no question that going through that discussion uh, did introduce uncertainty, did uh, make it more difficult for people to think about investing. So the message from BioFrontiers is that if you can deal with the new and the real sustainability issues that go with using some of these new resources um, and get ahead of the curve rather than sort of wait for five years and then try to play catch up, uh, then you can start off with a much more solid footing um, and give industry um, and investors a basis to know what the parameters are that they're being asked to work within. I'd like to ask you a follow-up question about that with respect to, you know, providing policy and uh, certainty so that, you know, investors will be attracted. Because of the situation that unfurled in Europe on, on iLUC and because of the high degree of certainty, can that, if the biofrontiers, the, the recommendations are, are uh, taken into account and incorporated into, you know, uh, European Commission policy on renewables, you know, can they turn the, the tide? In other words, is it too late and investors are scared away for good? Or can that be changed if they come out with a very clear, structured policy that does exactly what you just talked about? There's no question for me that there is a need to rebuild confidence, I think, on all sides and, and actually uh, to rebuild trust as well. And there will be investors, especially, you know, when people who are making these decisions are working in a variety of markets, when they're not uh, following every little bit of new news um, in the biofuel sector as it comes out. Um, there will be a, a sort of a sense of uh, underlying concern. There will be a sort of a folk memory in the investment community um, that we have been through this difficult period. But on the other hand, as you move forward, as uh, the European institutions come towards setting um, a firm policy framework, it, it will become reasonably obvious, I think, where we stand on this. If there is broad acceptance from uh, civil society, um, you will see that positivity and you will see a constructiveness in the debate. If civil society has no faith in the proposals as they come forward, they will make that, you know, abundantly clear. We will have, you know, whatever it might be, Greenpeace actions. We'll have, uh, you know, Oxfam or, or ActionAid or, or others in the development community doing press releases, doing actions about, um, you know, conflict between food and fuels or whatever it might be. So while, you know, I think that caution will be there, I think people should be able to see whether things have changed. And what I genuinely hope is that uh, with a policy proposal that does take into account these types of ideas that we've talked about in BioFrontiers, then it can and will be obvious to people that we've moved into a new and hopefully more stable phase of alternative fuel policy in Europe. So I want to ask you, the massive scale-up of biofuels really started, even though there was, you know, obviously biofuels production in Brazil and a small amount in the U.S., really the scale-up really didn't start until about 2004, 2005, 2006. So it's been 10 years into this, and we really have seen a, a massive scale-up globally of biofuels production and, and consumption, first-gen. What lessons can we learn from from that scale-up, the, the, the hits, the misses, that can be applied as 
you know, and I guess we can speak in the context of Europe, as Europe begins to remake and reframe its policy on biofuels? To sort of, uh, uh, to some extent, reiterate what we just talked about, I think one really obvious lesson is that there were various sustainability concerns around bioenergy, even as this uh, scale-up was starting to happen. In, in the European context, um, the biofuel directive was adopted in 2003, and you know, certainly there were parts of the environmental community who were very enthusiastic about biofuels at that time, but um, in academic circles, in government circles, and uh, within the environmental community, there were also people um, expressing various concerns about sustainability. You had a real um, expansion uh, at a very similar time in the application or the development of agricultural sustainability standards. Um, in particular, the World Wildlife Fund um, and a few others were supporting the development of these initiatives like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, Roundtable on Responsible Soy, uh, Roundtable on Sustainable Biofuels or latterly uh, Biomaterials, etc., etc. So, um, it was on the table that these concerns were there, and, and that was addressed somewhat at the legislative level. There are sustainability criteria in the existing European framework, um, but my feeling is that there was also an attempt at that time to kick some of these issues down the road. For the sort of the set of issues that were addressed directly through legislation, there are probably twice as many listed for monitoring within the Renewable Energy Directive, issues of soil quality, air quality, water quality, uh, workers' rights, compliance with international labor organization regulations, and also, of course, an explicit uh, call for a review on indirect land use change. Um, and certainly, I think that uh, there was a feeling in some parts of the industry as that directive was being negotiated, that it was good to push all this down the line that you could develop the industry and, and come back to these issues later if necessary. And I, I do think um, that one lesson that has to be taken away is that uh, pushing real sustainability concerns uh, forward and, and not dealing with them properly up front uh, does uh, create a risk in itself. And for the first generation industry, one of the outcomes of this has been that there has been significant overcapacity uh, in Europe because uh, volume targets have been grown more slowly um, than perhaps was in anticipated around about 2008 or 9, and, and that has been difficult. Another lesson that I think we can take, uh, not so much from the first generation industry, but actually from the attempts that have been there to develop a second generation industry, um, you know, notably the cellulosic mandate within the U.S. renewable fuel standard, you've seen a, a rapid um, gap developing between what was mandated and targeted in that standard um, and what has actually been achieved. And, and personally, I, I take away from this that if you set your targets too ambitiously, th this can seem like a good idea at the time. You know, having a larger market guaranteed in some sense um, sounds like a great business proposition. But actually, as achievement and aspiration start to diverge, this creates policy uncertainty. It, it inevitably creates opposition from the obligated parties who are sort of on the hook uh, to pay for unachieved targets. It, it creates questions for politicians. So I think that it, it's awfully important that we set targets that, while ambitious, um, are realistic and, and are achievable 
um, within the framework that we develop. Um, because the last thing I would like to see is, is for Europe to get to 2025, have set a too difficult target, uh, be miles behind it, and, and then have yet another total overhaul of the framework uh, to try and bring it back uh, more into reality. Yeah, I think in the U.S. It, it, it is kind of a vicious cycle because the the obligated parties are unhappy, uh, just as you say, because there's a gap. But it also creates this impression that the industry can't get off the ground and it can't get and, and it's not going to be uh, successful. And I think that uh, has done a lot to chill investor confidence as well. I mean, would you say that's a factor in that? And it's the same sort of cycle that you've just talked about, but now we can sort of see it in a in another lens through the, the RFS program and what's happened with cellulosic biofuels. If I was an investor, and uh, when I was at the ICCT a few years ago, we actually did a paper looking at this, looking directly at the financial performance of some of the sort of the early adopters of second generation biofuel technology. And sadly, uh, the reality is that that performance has been very poor. These uh, these companies have not been uh, a good investment uh, often um, in the last 10 years. And, and investors are aware of this. You can't uh, sort of pull the wool over people's eyes and, and get them to ignore history. Um, and uh, someone once said to me at a conference something which I thought was quite apt, which was that perhaps the uh, the second generation biofuel industry had had uh, too many salesmen and not enough chief executives in some sense. And, you know, the, the people who were pushing for these very strong cellulosic biofuel mandates as the renewable fuel standard was being developed we're doing so for exactly the right reasons, for exactly the same reasons that I um, and those we work with in BioFrontiers are looking for ambitious advanced biofuel targets to 2030. Clearly, with the benefit of hindsight and, you know, contextualized by the financial crisis that made everything more difficult in that period than it otherwise would have been. But, but nevertheless, it's clear with hindsight um, that that ambition uh, probably went too far. and, and I feel, and I know a lot of other people feel, that uh, when you have this constant sense of an industry that is going slower than it has promised to go, that does undermine confidence. So, and I, I think that there is a, a sort of a calming down and, and a retrenchment and a um, a keenness in all quarters to be much more moderate and, and really properly to think through and model through what is a reasonable level of achievement to look for. I want to turn back to uh, the project and ask you about the sustainability criteria. So that was uh, studied, and there's a separate paper about sustainability criteria that the European institutions, including the Commission, should, should consider. Can you talk a little bit more about what those are, what was suggested for those who may not be aware? And then um, I wanted to ask, what has the general reaction been in industry, biofuels industry, blenders, uh, refiners, um, what's what's been the reaction, and how do you see that impacting first-generation uh, producers? Uh, good question. The first thing I should say, just for a little bit of extra context in terms of how um, anyone reading these background studies should understand them, is that we do have uh, this relatively uh, pithy uh, synthesis report, which is what we were launching this week. 
um, that provides a common position um, that was adopted by all of our group members. We haven't asked nor expected, nor do we think we should be asking people to sign up to agree to everything in these hundreds of pages of supporting work that we did. So I'm going to be talking about recommendations for sustainability criteria, um, and the specifics are a recommendation made in this paper by the Institute for European Environmental Policy. I, I don't want to give the impression that, that I, I'm sort of saying that every single group signed up to our report has signed up to every detail here. But the reason we started doing this is because I think, firstly, it, it's been clear that there's been sort of discussed at great length in various academic reports and reports for the European Commission and elsewhere that the sustainability framework introduced in 2009 in the Renewable Energy Directive has not really been, certainly not fully successful, arguably not very successful in some ways at, at delivering what it was supposed to deliver. Um, and it, in brief, the criteria which are there are essentially a minimum a greenhouse gas reduction threshold, um, although unlike in the United States regulations, that ignores indirect land use change. But anyway, there's a life cycle analysis based minimum GHG saving threshold. And then there are specific criteria about types of land and that cannot be converted to biofuel production. So in brief, um, certain specific types of high carbon land, uh, certain specific types of high biodiversity land uh, cannot be converted to biofuel production um, for supply to the European Union, at least. And this misses various things. Some of the issues that I mentioned a minute ago um, that are reflected in, in, I think it would be fair to say, pretty much all of the voluntary sustainability certification schemes do consider things like um, air quality, soil quality, water quality, occupational safety, workers' rights, and so forth. So there is, um, I think there was a sense in our group that there was a legitimate, uh, legitimate need uh, to look at that more. There was a sense that you need to address this question of indirect impacts uh, one way or another. And there's also a sense that the criteria that we have, like I say, focused on land types, were developed specifically for land-based fuels. And with BioFrontiers, uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, the collection of waste and residues. So to give one example, straw from agricultural production can be collected and can be used as feedstock for cellulosic biofuel production. And this can be very sustainable, and, and uh, that's something that we would certainly support. However, if you remove too much material from the field, uh, you start to have negative side effects. You uh, inhibit the formation of soil carbon. Drawer in the field can have a function in reducing erosion. Um, it can recycle nutrients to the soil. Uh, so there's a need to manage the amount of material which is being removed. And on the positive side, if we look out to some of the sort of first of a kind uh, cellulosic ethanol plants in the United States, uh, we have seen that business has taken it upon itself to try um, to put in place systems to monitor that. Uh, I went out personally to Nevada with DuPont, and I was really impressed with what they put in place and the way that they've worked with the Department of Agriculture Natural Resource Conservation Service um, to put in place a system to manage that. But as I say, I, I think 
um, there is a need, and especially in the sort of European political context, to have re a regulatory framework that addresses this rather than simply relying on companies to deal with it themselves. And so we were looking to provide a sort of an outline set of proposals that could guide the Commission on the sort of things they should consider. And I think um, the Institute for European Environmental Policy are, are enormously well-placed to do this. It's sort of one of these things where I think, well, if the IEEP um, can't come up with a good proposal, uh, then who could? And I, I think that they've done some uh, excellent work. And we have been very focused, of course. I think industry has been open to this, but industry has the sort of legitimate concerns that industry always has when faced with the prospect of new and additional regulation. Is it fit for purpose? Is it proportional? How costly is it going to be? Uh, do you end up blocking some um, projects that would actually be good projects uh, because you put forward a set of criteria um, that aren't intelligent enough to distinguish. And for those reasons, what we've outlined is something that, that we feel would be based very much on thinking about sustainability in a bottom-up rather than top-down way, in the sense that what the IEEP have outlined is a system that would be very much based on sort of site-specific assessment and environmental impact assessment and monitoring. And especially given that for advanced biofuels, we are to a significant extent, talking about developing new supply chains for uh, energy cropping. You're talking about really expanding crops that are not already there. I think there is an opportunity to sort of get in on the ground and, and make this sort of sustainability monitoring um, a part of things before uh, before everything sort of has a chance to grow under its own steam. And as I say, industry actually has been very proactive in thinking about this. I went out to Nevada to look at what DuPont were doing. We sent a consultant out to Sardinia to look at an Arundo Donax project that uh, Biochemtex, the Italian uh, cellulosic ethanol uh, company, are developing. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we've been impressed uh, with some of what we've seen. And we think that we have seen a good project that sort of provide an indication that you can do things sustainably and that industry is open to doing this, you know, providing, like I say, the framework uh, remains proportionate and the measures that have to be taken to audit and assure this are not sort of unnecessarily expensive. I want to talk about one of the proposals or recommendations in BioFrontiers is that, you know, advanced biofuels should be prioritized in future policy setting. And that includes uh, perhaps, you know, an actual mandate, a mandate that is specific to advanced biofuels, or at least provides more of a level playing field uh, for advanced biofuels to compete, not unlike, you know, what we see in California with the low carbon fuel standard. So in that scenario, you know, how do you see that? Do you, do you see the commission actually doing that? The commission talked about that in the low emission uh, mobility strategy. Do you think that's actually going to happen? And how, what would that look like with, you know, again, with first generation biofuels? Do you see them, um, you know, if the recommendations that BioFrontiers has made sort of are, are captured in, um, in that policy, do they still play in the market, but what has been accomplished is that they get 
you know, ever more efficient. There will be some that are not efficient. Um, you know, they can't meet sustainability criteria. Their, their carbon intensities are too high. And, um, and thus, you know, they wouldn't be able to uh, participate, at least, you know, in the mandate, how, however that ends up being structured. But is there an opportunity for those producers to improve their carbon intensity such that they can also, you know, continue to be a player in the market and also comply with that kind of policy? I mean, to the first part of the question, will we see some sort of uh, specific mandate for advanced biofuels? Or, and I, I should also say it, it's sort of easy to slip into saying biofuels. We are talking about um, alternative fuels. More generally, we had the um, very constructive engagement of Lanzatech uh, in the BioFrontiers project to have a technology for producing ethanol from uh, waste carbon monoxide in flue gas. So, uh, you know, I, I, I should just uh, give my little uh, disclaimer and say that, that we think that there's a case for policy that supports not only advanced biofuels, but advanced alternative fuels in general. And that terminology was reflected in the report, and I should, uh, I should adopt that as well. It's okay. I do it all the time. Lancetech have about 20 people on staff whose job is to just go around the world asking people to say alternative fuels instead of biofuels. So, as you say, the European Commission has, in various, um, you know, within the ILUC directive, in communications um, since then, has made a very clear statement that it sees um, advanced alternative fuels as the uh, priority for European development for 2030. Um, and, and there's various language about food-based fuels having a limited role. Um, and that language varies slightly depending on exactly which thing you're reading. But, but that's what comes through. So I think, you know, I think everyone would be enormously surprised given um, that that message has been so firmly in these various communications if we don't see a proposal for some sort of specific support for advanced alternative fuels, or at least advanced biofuels, hopefully more broadly for advanced alternative fuels in the 2030 package. Um, and, and there's various forms that that might take. And there are always definitional questions. Exactly what will the European Commission sort of put into the advanced box and what might get left out? For, um, for listeners in the United States, it's worth always remembering that the Environmental Protection Agency, the Renewable Fuel Standard definition of an advanced biofuel, has been premised solely on carbon intensity reduction, whereas in Europe, so things like sugarcane ethanol um, in, in the RFS, soy biodiesel as well count as advanced. And when we're talking in the European context, we're talking very much about non-food resources. And, and, and certainly at least some people talk specifically in terms of advanced technologies. So we expect to see something there. There's various forms it could take. I don't want to get in too much to talking about um, the first generation industry. Uh, certainly the BioFrontiers project itself is very expi uh, explicitly advanced biofuels focused. Um, I think the report does say, you know, where there are biofuels that are not delivering on uh, climate objectives, that there isn't a case for continued support for those. And, and I, I think that that's a sort of a, a reasonable statement. And of course, for the representatives of those industries, we are going to have an ongoing discussion about what the evidence says about which 
uh, first-generation biofuels are better than which, what case there is to continue supporting things. I would personally be a little bit surprised if we saw a sort of an immediate zeroing out of support for these industries on 1st of January 2021 or 1st of January 2020, whenever things come into effect, I guess 2021. So there's going to be some sort of ongoing support. Uh, and within that, you know, the sort of ideas that the IEP looked at, I mean, in the context of advanced biofuels in this sustainability report, but these ideas can still apply uh, to the cultivation of first generation fuels and, and there's certainly something to be learned from that report for whatever sort of whatever way the first generation industry might continue and certainly in Europe the uh, first generation ethanol industry has made the case and I'm sure will continue to make the case um, that the analysis we have in Europe suggests that first generation ethanol does have better environmental performance than first generation biodiesel and, and will undoubtedly therefore be asking to have a sort of a specific place uh, in the post-2020 framework. And, of course, this, this is all likely to be within the same legislative instrument, and these discussions will continue um, to sort of move ahead side by side. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I know this is not part of the project, but I know you as an expert on uh, sustainability, biofuels, advanced biofuels, and advanced alternative fuels. I'm going to get comfortable with saying that. It's interesting because in Europe, the analyses do seem to suggest that there are some ethanols with certain feedstocks that do provide greenhouse gas reductions. And in the U.S., largely seems to be the opposite, that it's more, you know, if you look at biodiesels in California, I mean, some of them have very low uh, carbon intensities and uh, first generation, you know, corn ethanol, you know, the carbon intensity is improving, and some of those producers have done a lot to really bring down their carbon intensity, but, you know, it's higher than most biodiesel. So it's, it is interesting. I wonder if you have any, any, you know, insight about that, especially as someone who really is an expert on, you know, indirect land use change and the modeling that really goes into that. That must be a part of that. And as you say, there certainly are some differences between the way that similar feedstocks have been analysed on either side um, of the Atlantic. I'll note that poor old palm oil, which is, you know, ha has been a bit of a whipping boy for the uh, for environmental concerns and uh, and with good cause. I ha have been, you know, at, at the forefront of pointing out that the expansion of palm oil in Southeast Asia is, is really genuinely environmentally catastrophic. And therefore, you know, one should be very, very cautious at best um, before looking at palm oil biodiesel as a sort of a, a pro-environmental uh, policy and, and the analysis by California Air Resources Board and um, provisional analysis by the EPA as well as analysis in Europe all show that the indirect emissions um, for palm oil biodiesel uh, bio are very problematic um, in, in some analysis really uh, several times worse uh, than uh, the use of fossil diesel. It's worth understanding that when you model the same feedstock in different regions, you can genuinely be modelling different things. Um, you know, uh, modelling soy oil production from the European perspective probably has more of a focus on, on imports from Latin America. So uh, whereas when you look at soy oil expansion um, in response to US demand, you're probably talking um, dominantly uh, additional production within the United States. So 
regional differences can mean associations with different types of land use change, different types of ecosystems that might be converted, um, and therefore different impacts. And these analytical frameworks have many characteristics in common, but they are fundamentally different models. So again, uh, we shouldn't be entirely surprised uh, that we do see some differences. For corn ethanol in particular, I think partly because the industry developed in the United States, um, you know, somewhat earlier than in Europe. And there has been a history of corn ethanol plants uh, which really haven't been efficient. And if you go to some of the newer uh, wheat ethanol or corn ethanol plants uh, in Europe, then you have, you know, sort of designs that correspond to the most efficient new designs um, that might be uh, being built in America. And if you look at uh, data and uh, life cycle analyses for the Air Resources Board in the context of the low carbon fuel standard, uh, you do see that it is possible for a corn ethanol plant in the United States to have rather better performance than the sort of historical average, um, sort of Midwestern average corn or however it's labeled um, in LCFS. So, you know, certainly to the extent that the first generation industry uh, continues to produce fuel, um, there's an opportunity to deliver efficiency. Uh, the more efficiency uh, that can be delivered, um, the better for the climate. And, and no doubt um, there will continue to be a debate about what the sort of what underlies the differences between these analytical frameworks. But, but certainly in Europe, we have now uh, sort of two really significant economic modeling exercises uh, with um, the Mirage model of the International Food Policy Research Institute and with the Globiome model of the uh, uh, International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, I think EASA, um, both giving sort of comparable results that say that in the European context, ethanol looks better than biodiesel. And, and that also supported by uh, things like historical analysis that's been done by the European uh, Joint Research Centre. And, you know, in, in particular in the case of palm oil, um, with just this sort of narrative case, it, it's quite easy to see when you look at the palm oil industry um, that there's a sort of a high land use change risk. So I, I think few people are surprised when the palm oil numbers come out high. The last question I, I want to ask before we close is, you know, the, again, the BioFrontiers project focused on Europe, uh, the European situation, European context, and the, the future of, of, of um of biofuels, uh, advanced biofuels, and advanced alternative fuels in Europe, and so its its um, recommendations are made within that that uh, context. My experience is is that many countries on the fuel side do follow Europe on fuel specification setting. They followed Europe in terms of the fuel quality directive. I don't know if they've really followed them on the biofuels directive, but they've certainly gone into biofuels, and they've most certainly followed Europe on vehicle emission standards. So with whatever policy that the European institutions ultimately come out with, do you see other countries uh, following, especially countries like, you know, China? which has already invested in um, advanced alternative fuel technology, a number of them. At one time, you know, I have done the analysis on this for, for quite a while, but at one time China was investing more than the United States in terms of um, advanced uh, fuels, let's put it that way. 
So do you see countries like China or other countries following in this arena, especially as countries continue to search for, in the transport sector, ways to, you know, meet Paris Agreement commitments? And transport is is a challenge, I think, for uh, many, many countries, many countries like China. So do you see them following, other countries following in that path? I don't think there's any question, uh, as you say, that Europe is influential in general. Um, and I don't think there's any question that other countries will be looking to what happens in Europe. Um, and, and I think that's in terms of specific regulatory framework. Um, it's in terms of direction of travel. Uh, and of course, this can have both a positive um, and, and perhaps a, a slightly negative side to it. Um, in, in the sense of direction of travel, I think it's probably fair to say that there haven't been that many cases where you would say, OK, this uh, biofuel policy that's been introduced obviously sort of owes itself to the renewable energy directive. But, but certainly at the same time that many European countries were sort of becoming more cautious um, on biofuel targets as the ILUC debate moved forward, I think you also saw a general cooling off elsewhere in the world in terms of the number of countries trying to introduce policies um, and the speed with which they were being introduced. So a sort of a strong signal from Europe in favour of advanced biofuels will be noticed. And on the flip side, a weak signal from Europe will be noticed. And, And in the same vein, these things will be most effective in terms of leadership if they actually work. If people see an ambitious advanced biofuel policy in Europe that is effective, then that is an enormously strong signal to everyone else. If you see uh, an attempt in Europe to support advanced biofuels and for whichever reason, you know, sort of badly designed instrument, uh, ongoing policy uncertainty, you know, sometimes just um, just sort of ambient investment conditions as well. If, if the wind goes out of the sails in Europe, that will also uh, take the wind out of the sails elsewhere. Uh, so I, I do think that what happens in this discussion is more important than only um, in terms of the European industry. That This will be one of the factors that influences uh, global development uh, over the next decade. And, and even in the United States, where, of course, you know, there's the sort of institutional capacity to really uh, develop your own, your own thing if you like. People will still uh, be looking to what Europe has done, looking um, if Europe does have regulatory implementation of sustainability um, and and that works well and industry is comfortable and happy with that. That will be a strong signal um, that there may be an opportunity to implement those same measures either at the regulatory level in the United States or or perhaps simply um, to adopt them uh, as sort of uh, best practices directly by industry. So, you know, the European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council um, have, as ever, (laughs) when you're trying to run a continent, uh, have a great responsibility in a way here because the quality of the proposal that uh, comes out um, planned for release in December, although it is not unheard of for these things to be delayed, but the quality of that proposal and then the quality of what is eventually adopted after dialogue between the other European institutions has the opportunity to push things forward, really bring a lot of investment to Europe, deliver a lot of emission reductions, um, and and at a basic level, make good use of resources that are currently underutilized. On the other hand, something ineffective, 
uh, fails to deliver all that, but also fails to set an example for the world. So uh, I and the rest of my colleagues from BioFrontiers certainly have high hopes um, that we can have the former rather than the latter. It really is important. I just I, I recently uh, put a chart together looking at nationally determined contributions uh, for the transport side and comparing that, okay, here are the countries that have signed on to and ratified the Paris Agreement, and these are the countries that have uh, said they will be using or they are using um, biofuels as part of their uh, nationally determined contributions uh, to meeting the Paris Agreement targets. And I also looked at other low-carbon transport policies as well. Of course, our number on, you know, improving public transport and things like that. But the, the top two policies, uh, types of policies that countries indicated was number one, biofuels, and number two, uh, fuel economy standards. And I thought that that was, uh, that biofuels is really, um, you know, really, I wouldn't, ha with, with all of the controversy on indirect land use change, um, you know, sustainability, you know, in, in the U.S. and also in Europe, I would not have guessed that in one sense. On the other hand, if you look at the range of, of policies that are, you know, available or implementable uh, to countries, more readily implementable, you know, biofuels um, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, no pressure <laughs> on the European institutions, but, you know, it's very clear that countries do see biofuels as a way on the transport side to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and try to meet their Paris Agreement uh, commitments. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, what the European institutions come out with on biofuels and also to see whether these same countries, you know, maybe at varying uh, timelines, but whether they're able to and, and are interested in following. But it's very clear that that countries, they, they want to use biofuels. Sort of. Um, in, in a way, I think it maybe brings me back to something that, that we put um, sort of up front and center, I think, in our framing and our introduction um, to the BioFrontiers report, which is that even with electrification uh, going well, moving forward and, and delivering uh, emission reductions and uh, growing the fleet of zero, uh, zero emission vehicles, even with efficiency standards uh, delivering reductions in uh, demand and uh, coming from the International Council on Clean Transportation, I think it's sort of incumbent on me to point out that uh, vehicle efficiency standards have been enormously successful policies in this regard and will continue to be so. With all of that, you're going to have a really large rump, if you like, of uh, liquid fuel demand uh, come 2050 certainly at the global level, and even in a region like Europe, which um, sort of looks to be um, ahead of the rest of the world in this regard. So if you have uh, technologies that can decarbonize, deliver low-carbon liquid fuels, that can do it, you know, with the correct legislative framework, that can do it sustainably, um, and that while doing it can reduce import dependence, uh, improve the balance of trade, deliver jobs, deliver uh, investment, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, why wouldn't you want to do that? I think that's a realistic, I mean, it, it, from my personal standpoint, I think that's a realistic view. I, I have um, certainly known and have been in touch with, with advocates who really think, um, you know, this is all bullocks, we should go to electric vehicles and just be done with it. And it's like, well, you know, it's, 
it's um, it's really not that simple. Our um, you know energy system, our, our transport system. I mean, you uh, you don't. Um, uh, reform, reinvent, um, evolve. You don't. You don't do that in um, you know short period of time. It will be. We will see um, increasing um, penetration of, of electric vehicles and this whole you know autonomous ride sharing electric vehicles. I, I think that's a phenomena that we are going to see you know in the next um, ten. 15 years or so, or maybe even sooner, because the technology development is just um, amazingly fast-paced. But um, you're certainly not going to see, you know, the internal combustion engine and um, and fuels go away overnight. Um, so there, there will be some transition, and I think that you need, you know, the support of other low-carbon alternatives to get there, advanced alternative fuels, you know, being you know, part of that sphere. What What is your thought on that? I think that's exactly right. Um, electric vehicles are an important technology. Growth in electric vehicle deployment um, has been impressive, but these things certainly take time. And I, I think I mentioned earlier the word complementarity. This is sort of core, in my mind, core to the sort of philosophy that runs through BioFrontiers. Uh, that you need to have um, a lot of these things working together um, if you're going to deliver on your overall goals and, you know, in particular um, on uh, things like the goals in the Paris Agreement. All right. So we'll end it there. That's the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I want to thank Chris so much for being on the show today and for the really, really interesting uh, discussion. Please do us a favor before you go. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking in iTunes and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. If you're looking for more insight and analysis on low-carbon fuels and vehicles issues, you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.